Welcome to the Farm Beats podcast. Farm Bits is proudly produced by the Nebraska Digital Agriculture team and hosted by students at the University of Nebraska. The Farm Beats podcast comes to you each week to discuss the trends, the realities, and the value of digital agriculture. Through interviews with experts, producers, and innovators from across the agriculture industry, we hope that you step away from each episode with new practical knowledge of digital agriculture technology. Hello, Farm Beats followers, and welcome to another episode of the Farm Beats podcast. I'm Jackson Stansel. And I'm Jose Cesario. And we are glad to have you with us as we welcome Dr. Andrew Andy Little, Assistant Professor in the School of Natural Resources at the University of Nebraska, to the Farm Bits podcast. In this episode, we get into the topic of precision conservation, which is essentially using data to make more informed, localized conservation management decisions. This is a really interesting topic in digital agriculture right now, and one that we have gotten several questions about. So let's dive in as Andy discusses his current research and the state of precision conservation with us. I guess we want to go ahead and get get officially kicked off. Andy. Yeah, that works would for you, me. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and just how you got into your your current position here as a faculty member at, at yeah, UNL? Absolutely, yeah. So first off, again, thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity to come. And so, yeah, my position here at the university is assistant professor of landscape and habitat management. I'm 60% extension, 40% research. Um, it's a really unique position. And that I, you know, I'm really I'm engaging a lot with our projects that we have with people on the ground, and so I'm interacting with producers, landowners, and and addressing these conservation needs that we have. And so um, I ended up, you know, not to go too far back in time, but basically I started and I got my bachelor's degree at Penn State University, ended up uh, in fisheries and wildlife management, and then moved and got my master's in Mississippi State, uh, uh, in basically the same field, fisheries and wildlife management, working sure. white-tailed deer. Uh, looking especially at how hunting pressure affected deer movements during the yeah. hunting season. Was that the deer lab down at Mississippi State? Uh, yes, it was. Okay. Yes, it was. Yep, cool. Down to deer that's lab. Cool. Yep, that's right. And so my research is actually out in South Central Oklahoma, even though I was going to school there in Mississippi. So I'd go over to the uh, Noble Research Institute, which is a big ag research institute, who was basically helping to support our project with their lands out there in Oklahoma where we were doing the study. Um, and so well, I left there. I worked at Ducks Unlimited as a GIS uh, technician for uh, several months and basically helped manage a bunch of the GIS data sets that they had in the south central region of the country um, and working a lot with our biologists down there and, and as they worked with landowners and helping them you know, enroll folks into wetland conservation programs and such. Uh, and then I took off and moved over to Georgia and got my PhD over there working on wild turkeys. Um, so kind of switched it up a little bit, but I was all, I'm always been in this game realm, game species yeah. realm. I have a lot of interest. I grew up hunting and fishing. Um, it's been a strong passion of mine. And so, um, yeah, really that kind of birthed that interest to kind of continue to expand that, you know, schooling. And so with the, the PhD, we were just looking at how prescribed fire was influencing um, turkey populations, particularly some of the uh, landowners were concerned about growing season fires. So burning, burning, especially during the nesting period. Mm. And is that having negative influences on the turkey populations? And so, um, so we were addressing some of those questions, my research. And then after that, I finished up and started a postdoc position there um, at the University of Georgia Deer Research Lab. And so I worked on various uh, research projects that were tied to the state agency. Uh, and so a lot of different questions that they were asking about, you know, deer, uh, you know, in, uh, population uh, parameters and things like that around, uh, you know, North Georgia mountains where you had a lot, it's a very mountainous area mm -hmm. and trying to address you know, questions about, you know, hunter satisfaction and, you know, population declines of deer and things mm -hmm. like that. And so, yeah, a lot of different projects I got to work on during my postdoc. And then that eventually led to the position that ended up coming here. 
Um, and here it's been a, a great position to be able to get started and uh, especially tied to the topics of precision conservation. We'll talk about a little later on. Very cool. Very cool. Well, that's pretty impressive, Andrew. <laughs> so uh, your lab here at UNL, it's the AWESM lab, which stands for the Applied Wildlife Ecology and Spatial Movement Lab, right? That's correct. Uh, could you tell us about the lab and some of the different topics that you are currently focused on? Yeah, absolutely. So we, so that acronym we just kind of term is the awesome lab. So uh, that's kind of our acronym with that. So we are the awesome lab, go. truly the awesome lab. Um, so yes, we, so we really are very applied. And again, being especially an extension um, here at the university, you know, working with our landowners, get hearing questions, concerns that they may have, and then turning some of that into research projects. Um, you know, obviously based on funding right. support and things like that. Um, really, so our pro really the emphasis of our uh, lab as a whole, kind of our mission is we're really focused kind of this nexus of conservation and ag profitability. And, you know, looking at these production systems and thinking about how can we implement conservation practices, whether that's benefiting soils, water, wildlife, whatever. I, I tend to view myself as working in a, a very broad array of, of different projects. Mm -hmm. um, and so I actually am you know, partnered currently with folks that are here in biological systems engineering and ag hort, um, other departments across campus, awesome. um, work on a variety of ag related questions, um, but then tying that back to our conservation efforts. And so we have projects really ranging from uh, things talking about precision conservation to pronghorn in Western Nebraska. We currently mm -hmm. have a project with uh, Nebraska Game and Parks Commission, where we've been collaring, uh, putting GPS collars on pronghorn in Western Nebraska, looking at their movements. Um, around that Western Nebraska landscape. And so uh, again, this is really a broad array of different projects, but again, they're very applied in addressing questions that producers, landowners have about you know, conservation and trying to, trying to find these kind of the middle ground opportunities to be able to manage really for both. Sure. Yeah, and you, you kind of mentioned that nexus of you know agricultural production and profitability, sure. wildlife management and land conservation. I mean, why do you think that that it's so important to Nebraska and more broadly? And why is Nebraska kind of the right place to be doing this sort of research? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Well, you know, obviously being here in the state of Nebraska, being ninety seven percent privately owned, um, we're working a lot with our landowners and being such a an, obviously an agriculturally dominated state. Um, and there's been a lot of questions of okay, things like how can I try to improve the overall crop profitability, the production side, but at the same time, not, you know, uh, maybe put more nutrients on or, you know, trying to managing those things more uh, sustainably into the future. And so really Nebraska kind of sets itself up to be a perfect state to implement these ideas um, mm -hmm. because of that really that ag dominated nature. And then finding ways again, where we can kind of optimize not only that profitability for a producer, but thinking about other stackable enterprises for mm -hmm. them, you know, whether that's, you know, producing, you know, um, you know, other areas for wildlife, which then could turn into maybe a business, a side business, mm -hmm. like even like a lease, for example, mm -hmm. hunting lease. Um, so they can help. And again, maximizing the whole field profitability for themselves. So, yeah, that's really cool. That's cool. Andrew. And you also mentioned like a lot about this precision conservation and with this being a digital agriculture focused podcast, we really like to focus on how data and digital tools influence the agricultural production and management. There is this emerging practice called precision conservation that leverages the data and digital tools. Mm -hmm. Would you mind defining the precision conservation for us? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, precision conservation really as a whole is basically using um, spatial tools to help uh, identify those consistently marginal areas where you could then in turn 
um, basically diversify your practices and basically you're finding things using data sources like, you know, hydrography data, um, you know, soil data, you know, yield monitor data, et cetera. And we can kind of compile that into a framework where we can say these areas are consistently marginal and we want to take and diversify. So um, you may maybe more like a precision cover crop option. Mm. It could be a you know precision livestock option where we're putting a section of that into a you know, pasture because we're not really producing much on that. So we're going to put something else there. You know, precision honey management. So in other words, like kind of putting areas precisely that section of the field into a lease or some other alternative option mm. is kind of the point of it. And so it's really. Precision conservation really is birthed out of, you know, using precision ag tools, a lot of things that are readily available already um, to a landowner to help them identify those areas. And I'll, and I'll be honest, a lot of people, a lot of producers know where those areas are. They, they know from year to year, like I know that area is yeah. just marginal. I'm not getting much out there. So therefore, I'm going to reduce the population density of corn or soybean plants in that area. And yeah. so those, but then you're using the spatial data that we can have, we can actually map all that out. And then we can make, you know, give them alternative options that you can put in here as a, something else to diversify. So, yeah. And you, you kind of go went ahead and, and provided an overview of, of some of those decisions that a producer might make using sure. some of this data. Um, but you also kind of alluded to, you know, the, these are the options that we kind of put out there. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to dig into that decision-making process a little bit more. How, sure. how would a farmer um, or, or a landowner look at this data and make these decisions? I mean, is, is it the level of decision-making detail that you say, oh, you know, maybe brome grass is like the right thing mm. we need to put in this particular area, um, you know, or maybe this is an ideal area for livestock management, or is it just kind of, these are the different options that we have for this area. Let's figure out what works for your operation. Correct. Yeah. A lot of it ends up being more what works best for your operation. Okay. Cause as you, you know, everybody's going to be different. Every producer is going to have, you know, different capabilities. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, from a standpoint of if I can put cash or not, or if I can put a certain cover crop or not, um, those type of things. And so, you know, really it comes down to kind of giving people kind of like a, I kind of view it as almost like a smorgasbord of, of different options. And then you can say, here, pick what best fits for your needs and your, you know, capabilities uh, sure. for your land. And then also knowing that every field is going to be different too. You know, you mm -hmm. may have one field that you're doing this and then another field you're doing something totally different. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing is you're kind of, you're leveraging the variation of those fields the, with the the whole intent is to maximize that overall farm profitability as sure. a whole. So sure, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think. Yeah, and, and you also mentioned like that some farmers they already know some areas that they are having sure low yields or precision conservation are being used nowadays. Yeah, so that's a great another great question. I would say right now the with precision conservation, it's really kind of at the earlier stage of adoption. Um, one, just because there's a lot of a lot of questions around the tools available to make those decisions. You know, there's not been a, a lot of tools available essentially. Hmm. Um, and so from a producer standpoint, I think um, Dr. Joe Luck had put together a study here a few years ago and looked at kind of adoptability of precision ag practices in the state. Hmm. And really kind of, as he says, it kind of bends it into three groups. You have producers that may not be interested in this type of technology. People are very progressive and are using it on a day-to-day -day basis, but really a kind of larger contingent that are in the middle that are I like to use it, but I, there's a lot of steps that are in the middle when I'm trying to make decisions, you know, and I don't may not have somebody to help me with doing that. And so that's where, you know, we're hoping in the future that we can continue to develop those type of tools that can, and working mm -hmm. with landowners. And that's where, you know, in my opinion, it's incredibly valuable to actually talk with those landowners 
and get their perspectives on you know these tools because at the end of the day we can develop these tools these kind of theoretical ideas and things and put all this together but if you can't get it adopted and that's a whole nother challenge and True. so it really to me especially being in the extension realm is actually bringing people together and from various walks of life and, and kind of saying how can we move this forward? Like, what what are some of the things that we need to be thinking about yeah. to make this applicable to you as a producer, a landowner in the state? Absolutely, and, and I think we want to definitely touch on kind of that stakeholder participation for sure. Practice practice a little bit later on in the interview, but just kind of thinking about this adoption piece, and you you brought yeah. up that study from the past three years. I mean, considering kind of our, our ag landscape right now. Uh, we're, we've been thinking a lot about farm profitability over the past few years. You know, we had the, we had some pretty low corn prices here a couple mm-hmm. years ago, but now we're in this area where we've got really high nitrogen prices sure. and we also have high corn prices. We've got uh, just a lot of stuff that's going on on the farm profitability yeah. front. How is that kind of driving people's interest in these technologies and potentially even the adoption? Yeah, that's another great question. I would say it's, it really is, um, Again, because it's so new, it's been you know probably somewhat limited adoption thus far, but it's it's growing in interest. There's a lot of people that are wanting to do this as they're seeing fluctuations in the market and trying to you know diversify their operations. But that's one of the big things too is that the industry is really kind of you know drives a lot of that. And so if you're like you said, your corn prices are up or your nitrogen prices are up, like you said right now. You know that obviously going to affect whether I'm not whether or not I'm going to make a decision. You know, should I or not adopt this conservation or this other type of practice? And historically, you know, from some of the work that I've seen, especially with precision conservation, where I've seen more of like a maybe like a conservation reserve program focus, yeah. um, I've kind of taken a little different uh, approach in it and kind of saying, you know, CRP is a really good way to kind of think about that. But also thinking about alternatives because at the end of the day, CRP there's only so much money there. And so what other options exist for a producer? Can it be, you know, hunting leases or grazing lands or whatever to kind of break up the, you know, kind of the monocultural systems, especially when you have these, you know, marginal areas where you're really not making much on. So, and I guess before we dive into the next question, that's a really interesting point because I've heard a lot of growers bring up, you know, CRP and and enrolling in the CRP program. Could, could you maybe get into a little bit more detail on what the differences are between like and just enrolling in a CRP and what the potential benefits are of, of more of these, I guess, maybe uh, higher ceiling profitability practices? Yeah. So, you know, I, I from particularly from the CRP, I think that really, you know, I, I think it's I kind of put them all honestly in the same bucket, per se, of like, you know, they, they various ones could really increase your overall profitability. So, you know, not saying that CRP cannot, because obviously it can, but it's mm-hmm. like really the strategic implementation. Where and that's where, yeah, where it should go. And yeah. then also thinking about, okay, CRP could be one option of multiple options that you could think about. But then uh, the end goal of all of that is sustainability, conservation of that area, material uh, of that field. And so that's your end goal. However, you know, you have different, you know, means to get to that end. CRP is one of them. So it's not to negate that CRP is not important because it's obviously incredibly important. But it's thinking about is there other options beyond right. CRP to okay. help benefit that in the long term? And that's where I think that you can you know, implement these other types of ideas of like a great example, a hunting lease example. Um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Martin McConnell, who's down at Mississippi State University, had mentioned this in the past that he had a producer, one a, a fairly uh, well-known producer in the state of Mississippi, where they had a section of his field um, that was regularly inundated with water uh, along the Mississippi River. 
Well, basically it, it didn't make a lot of sense to keep every year planting that if it was constantly getting flooded out. And so what they did is they basically kind of, you know, essentially chopped that section of the field off, lease that out to waterfowl hunters, Man. and they were actually able to maximize overall profitability. Sure. Now that's one option. Could you put it into a, a, a maybe a wetland conservation program? Absolutely. You know, so there's different ways to kind of look at that. And I think that's where the there's opportunities moving forward from a tool development to kind of help producers get the suite of options that exist and then decide, let them decide what makes the most sense, you know, saying here's, here's, you know, five, 10 options or whatever you decide what makes the most sense given your practice. And again, like we talked about earlier, it's like that may differ from one field to the next. So awesome. Yeah. And since you guys been working directly with the, these producers, uh, we would like to know what data type are crucial to help these guys to apply these precision conservation techniques. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a lot of the data that um, we have that we can utilize is publicly available data. So things like slope or elevation data, you know, hydrography uh, types of data sets. The other thing that has been obviously a, a real popular now is getting yield monitor data to build into that. And that's where, you know, I, I mentioned um, earlier about Nart, Dr. Mark McConnell. They actually have developed a tool um, particularly tied to CRP programs to basically identify one, what is eligible, what acres in your field are actually eligible for a suite of different conservation programs. And then taking that a step further and tying that to the yield monitor data. Cause then, you know, you can have an entire field, you have sections of that are eligible, but at the end of the day, there's only so much money that you can roll section of that field in. Well, where do I really want to target that enrollment? So we kind of even think about, you know, Iowa State and the Prairie Strips program. So we kind of think about establishing prairie strips, maybe on the downhill slope of an area. So as that soil is getting washed down, it's getting stopped by the prairie uh, grass that are there to kind of hold that up. So it's not then running down into the neighboring stream. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it's kind of thinking strategically using those spatial data sets. And that's again, so a lot of that's available. Um, the yield monitor data, that's obviously producer, you know, dependent uh, to be able to get that stuff. So, but again, we're really honestly still in that kind of that new novel phase right now. where We're still trying to figure out like how this is all going to play out. And we're hoping that, you know, with demonstration sites across the state that we'll be able to start illustrating this to producers in, in a more at a larger spatial scale. Yeah. And how, have you run into any challenges in terms of like data quality and, and availability of, of yield monitor data as you're starting to get into this or? Yeah. The, the, the one challenge I know like yield monitor data obviously has to be cleaned up. And mm -hmm. so that's, that takes time and there are obviously programs out there that can help with that, right. but it, you know, that stuff takes time to go through all that and clean everything up and get it to kind of a, a quality data set to work through. Um, but, you know, a lot of the publicly available data sets like your elevation slope, all that kind of stuff, you know, that stuff has been kind of tried and true data sets for years on end. So yep. um, again, it's really kind of leveraging these various uh, data sources in a way it's going to be a positive for the producers. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And do you believe that there is a place for a digital assessment too that would yeah. allow farm of their land to determine if assessment, it could be benefit from implementing the conservation or? Like yeah, that absolutely. So that's where I would like to go in the near future is to mm -hmm. kind of really get tools in the hands of our landowners, our producers, um, so that they can, you know, essentially play around with the data and kind of decide since we, again, we have a lot of publicly available data and then it's their you know, yield monitor data that they can pull into the, the programming side of things. And then they can kind of say, you know, here's some different options and kind of here's some cost analyses. And there are different companies that are trying to 
push to get stuff like that. And again, I mentioned Dr. Mark McConnell earlier, he developed one more tied to CRP practices. Hmm. Um, but again, that, the hope is in the future, we can kind of, there's a lot of variables. That's the problem. There's a lot of variables to throw into it and create a, a framework that can be beneficial to various different options out there. Um, Cause costs are going to change and there's a lot of different, you know, differences across the state, you know, from even from a ring gradient side of things that are going to likely affect your decision-making yeah. as a producer. And so you, you've kind of mentioned that there are some companies that are, they're potentially looking to get into this space. And I think about, you know, people like, uh, or I said, I should say groups like Ducks Unlimited or Pheasants Forever. Sure. I mean, what is their role in this space? Are, are they some of the people that are looking at potentially trying to build some of these tools out? Or? Yeah. So a really good one um, is uh, Pheasants Forever. So they actually, um, they have their uh, director uh, over in Iowa, um, Ryan Henniger, who's a producer over there and also works on the basically director of the Precision Ag Program. Mm. Um, and I and basically he oversees kind of, you know, a lot of their precision ag biologists they have across the country. And we more locally, Nathan Fluger, who is actually a graduate here of UNL, mm. uh, guys, master's in agronomy and horticulture. Uh, just a couple of years ago, he is now the precision ag specialist for, um, for pheasants forever. And basically what he's actually based out of the York area. Okay. Uh, and so he's, that, that's basically part of his job is kind of identify, you know, different right now, one of the tools I know that pheasants forever has used in the past was working with, or one of the companies I should say is ag solver. Um, that's mm-hmm. been one of the companies that they've used in the past. And so, um, using companies like that, or even things like, uh, again, with Mark's tool, eventually, uh, coming out here and kind of be able to utilize things along those lines. Um, to work then directly with the producer, kind of serving almost like in a liaison type role. Because yeah. um, again, some of these tools, you know, can be complicated and, and you need an advisor. And so you need to kind of have an advisor yeah. there to help you through the process to do that. And that's kind of the hope is to kind of build that infrastructure, especially from my extension side of things is then do workshops and training events with landowners. And once we get some more of these tools available to walk them through how they can actually do a lot of this on them, their own. So then it really kind of turns it over to them to make the decisions and play around with options, try to create kind of user friendly options for them um, in that decision making. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's really interesting because variables involved on this precision conservation, like you said, it, there seems to be a fairly significant element of the socio- sociology and also the psychology that impacts sure. the adoption of these precision technologies as well. Could you expand a little bit for us on that? Yeah, well, and there's, so it really kind of speaks to the, the complexities of this issue. There is no silver bullet um, in adopting conservation practices. And, and really, there's no you know, silver bullet in really anything in life. You know, it's just a matter of fact. There's a lot of pros and cons to things. And um, I have two graduate students right now that are working on a Nebraska Environmental Trust mm-hmm. funded grant that are basically asking the questions about, you know, basically farmers and farmland owners adoption of targeted conservation or precision conservation practices. Um, and basically kind of addressing not only the side of the landowners, because obviously that's really the, one of the most fundamental groups, but then also asking our conservation folks as well. And then kind of finding, you know, are there, you know, issues there, maybe kind of discrepancies between the two different groups and how messages are getting out um, and, and kind of how to move forward. And, and I think one of the things from, a, you know, kind of like the sociology side of things um, is you're thinking about a landowner and then obviously their peers within an area. And so the, I really, the ideal scenario that I've heard has worked really well and passed for various options is 
having somebody that's well known in your community that are, is able to adopt some of these practices and then be able to kind of let them kind of lead teaching others. Hmm. So then it's not necessarily back on the researcher, the extension person. It really comes down to the somebody that they maybe have lived in that community for a hundred years, their family. Yeah. Um, and so they can work with them and kind of ask them questions like, how did this work for you? Like, what did you do here? What did you do there? Kind of thing. Yeah. So it really kind of puts it on then the producers in those neighborhoods to kind of sell those options moving forward. So, sure. But again, it, there definitely is a component of that sociology kind of thing and psychology kind of thinking through, you know, the complexities that I have you know, taxes being another challenge here in the state for producers, you know, kind of saying, well, hey, if I, you know, maybe take this out of production and put this in a conservation program, then I may lose the cropping history on that. And then that may cause other problems down the road from a tax implication standpoint. Sure. And so how do I, how do I navigate that? And that's where I think, you know, with our stuff in our lab, we're really trying to focus on those realms of how can we identify the, the major you know, barriers to adoption. That's really what the emphasis of this project is from a producer standpoint. And then from the conservation standpoint, the folks, how can we then work with them to address these barriers? We know there's gonna be barriers. What are those barriers? And how can we kind of develop tools to address those concerns that producers may have? Because that's really gonna end up, if you have pretty significant barriers, gonna basically affect adoption of yeah. practices like this, so. Sure. yeah. And kind of as we're getting into this stakeholder discussion, I think the stakeholder uh, discussion is something we need to talk about a little bit more within sure. digital ag because, you know, even just on the digital ag side, I think it's actually a little bit simpler on the digital ag side, you know, because to some yeah. extent you, you really only have a farmer, their advisor, and sure. maybe their, their core network of advisors, sure. right? And to some extent you have the NRDs maybe yep. at play. But here you've got, I mean, you have a lot of different tax making, you know, tax decisions like you just mentioned. You have uh, landowners that also have to kind of participate in these decisions in addition sure. to the farmers that are, you know, managing it. You've got the NRDs, you got your Pheasants Forever people, you have NRCS, yeah. right? So it's a, it's a very complex group. It Plus is. you have the outdoorsmen if you start bringing True. in hunting leases, True. right? Yep. So like, how do you navigate these complex conversations and, and how do you also build tools that, <laughs> you know, kind of provide people yeah. the information? Well, it's, it's complex, not easy. Right? I will say that. It's not easy for such a <laughs> complex set of, you know, issues per se. Yeah. Um, but really, you know, try to simplify things as much as we can. We actually have a grant right now. It's a precision conservation grant. It's a uh, through the University of Nebraska system um, focused on basically developing a, a series of stru uh, structured decision making workshops where we bring in producers, conservation folks, ag industry folks, um, et cetera, to just talk about, you know, conservation in agricultural landscapes, barriers to adoption, challenges, how can we, even at a smaller group, kind of work through, you know, a, you know, implementing future practice, sustainable practices, um, and and you know, really kind of getting that core group to discuss those, you know, barriers. And mm -hmm. and our hope is, you know, through that grant, that'll kind of lead into maybe another grant down the road where we can kind of expand on more of some of these questions about, you know, you know, from a barrier perspective you know, what are some innovative approaches to get to address that, you know, constant barrier of X, Y, or Z for a producer. Mm -hmm. And then you hit on another really important point, especially in Nebraska. I know a lot of other Midwest states that have um, basically these uh, landowners, essentially they're absentee or basically are, are folks that are not around. They may live in a different state. Uh, maybe they live there and they lease it out to, um, you know, a different group of, of producers. And so that, that became basically creates another challenge. Yeah. You know, because you have two different groups now you may have and I've heard this from producers is, you know, I, I, I like the ideas of precision conservation, but I'm you know a little concerned that, you know, maybe that would lead to losing my lease on ground. And I, you know, I want to kind of keep that. And so that's obviously another barrier. And we basically are working through or especially our environmental trust grant 
trying to address that component. So, you know, we, we've kind of talked about all these different tools, but a lot of it has been focused on, all right, I have a single quarter section or I have oh, a sure. single field, right? And I want to, I want to convert part of it into this, you know, hunting lease, or maybe I want to put part of it in CRP. Yep. We also, I mean, we know that wildlife don't really like stay in one area, at <laughs> yeah, least like a sure. lot of them don't. Right. Yeah, and so, sure. and so you kind of need to look at, I guess, more regional scale True. practices. So, and, and I know your lab group's kind of been getting into some of this yep. sort of more regional scale research. Can you talk to yeah. us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Yeah. So you really, you know, I, I kind of think of, cause I also focus a lot on landscape ecology and, and not like the landscaping we're out planting plants around our house, more about like different scales and how the landscape is laid out and how the patches are laid out in the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think a lot about this, we have a project right now with Game of Parks. Um, it's a, a pheasant project. And so, you know, some of the questions that landowners have asked us is like, well, hey, you know, how can I think about even at a broader scale about, you know, improving the conditions for pheasant populations mm-hmm. in my area, not just my one individual field, but, you know, my neighbors and, you know, and kind of building out like a kind of like a ripple in a pond type of effect. And that's where really the regional analyses kind of these, I kind of call them like a multi-scale analysis where you're looking at like, you know, it, it could really, it can kind of come in all different forms, but you could say like, I want to look at, you know, multiple properties within, say, a five uh, square mile area and what, you know, what look at the profitability amongst those properties and then where potential adoption opportunities. And then how could we, you know, if we implemented certain practices here, there, here or there, um, how that would actually influence, you know, population abundances. Again, a lot of that ends up being more, you know, population dynamics and and Mm. estimating things. Um, But again, that's, that's an opportunity where I know even from a state agency side, there's been questions not only here in Nebraska, but even across the United States is, okay, we have a limited pot of money. Where at even a regional scale do we really kind of target, surgically target our dollars most strategically? Mm -hmm. Is there ways that we can do that? Is there tools that we can do that? And that's where we have another student um, who is in a different lab, uh, who's basically a PhD student working on some of that kind of even at a regional scale and bringing in our uh, National Commodity Crop Productivity Index, Mm -hmm. NCCPI, um, pulling that data set in and then looking at, you know, kind of even at a regional scale, um, how that ties into yield monitor data in particular. Um, is it accurate? Is it not? You know, what kind of tweaks need to be made for the future? But then even, you know, from an agency using that at a regional scale, are there certain fields that, you know, are certain producers that we can kind of work with to be able to say, hey, you know, you may have some marginal grounds that, you know, could be, you know, put into some diversified practices. Yeah. So that's an example. The other thing I also would say, you know, with the pheasants, that's a, you know, been a question, you know, especially as farming practices obviously have changed over time. And I have a lot of producers, um, especially ones who are older, who, you know, talk about, you know, in the 60s, 50s and 60s, where they had really good pheasant populations to now we see our numbers really declining quite a bit, especially in this part of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, we're asking questions like, how do we get pheasants back? And obviously that's a very loaded question, very complicated question, because there are a lot of factors that go into that. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, pheasants are a, a big deal. It was estimated a couple of years ago that pheasant hunting as a whole is about a $32 million annual business to the wow. state of Nebraska. Um, and that obviously that money is trickling down to local communities where land or uh, hunters are going to stay at a um, Airbnb or a hotel and eating at the local uh, eateries around town yeah. and investing in those local communities. And so really, um, you know, with that type of impact, that economic impact, 
thinking about how the landscape is laid out and looking at how where patches are laid out in the landscape, we can create in my mind kind of these ecotourism opportunities. So mm -hmm. you, so maybe you have a suite of properties that have more wetland areas, for example. Mm. Maybe that's an opportunity for waterfowl hunters. So it's not just you, the landowner. It could be you and your neighbors. So you it's kind like of co-op. It's like yeah. absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what it is. It's a, basically, and I kind of call that like a conservation co-op. Huh. And so it's kind of grouping multiple properties together. And, and maybe everybody has slightly different objectives and that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but you can have a common goal sure. of, Hey, we want to do X, Y, and Z um, on our properties. And a great example of this, we can go to kind of the ranching side of things and think about the Schweitzer ranch, which is in the sand Hills. And they obviously, you know, be a more production cattle system. Mm -hmm. um, but then they said, well, Hey, we, what about diversifying and doing some other things on our property? And so they started doing that. And now they're seeing additional streams of uh, income coming in. The great part about all that is these additional streams of income is that you can also then help from a, you know, those years that you may have, a, you know, a, a lower uh, dollar per bushel, you know, you can help offset those years that are maybe, or you have a drought year or whatever. It's a, it's a kind know. of stabilizing. Correct. And, yeah. Yep. So these okay. are alternative options. So interesting. Okay. Very, very cool. Yeah. And following up a little bit on the original scale experiments that you you guys been doing, how does cropping system diversity or lack of it uh, impact the feasibility or implementing best practice for this precision conservation? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. So really, you know, in, in my mind that, you know, the, because again, it is pretty complex. There's a lot of pieces to go into that. Um, we are kind of looking at even at that regional scale of, okay, if we focus on, um, you know, say we'll kind of use Southeast Nebraska, a great example, we've got obviously a lot of dryland acres down here. And we think at a regional scale where we have obviously a lot, just primarily a corn bean rotation, you know, what other options were, you know, kind of from a theoretical standpoint, we're kind of looking through of, could we implement that could still have an economic, a good economic return for a producer, um, but even in a broader spatial extent. So not just the field, but like multiple producers within an area. Um, and I think part of what, you know, kind of getting out with that is the, when I'm starting to look at it from a wildlife perspective, because that's again, my training as a wildlife biologist, mm -hmm. I'm kind of looking at connectivity of patches and things like that. When you look, I, I used an example one in the past in presentation in Odo County. So just in the neighboring county here yeah. and looking at the fragmentation of our, you know, grassland patches versus just, you know, regular ag patches. And you, you can see the fragmentation of these really limited patches. Obviously, there are some clumps here and there, but most of them are pretty dispersed. Um, and the, the question there is, how do if you're a pheasant, for example, how do you get from point A to point B? One of the things that's been discussed a lot in the past, okay, well, when the crops are up, you know, yeah, that provides obviously some refugia that, you know, to get mm. from point A to point B. But what happens in the wintertime, those cold months when there's not much cover out there, now you're really fragmenting that population down to very limited areas, which tends to be why you see, a, you know, higher abundances of pheasants in, say, southwest Nebraska, McCook area, et cetera, um, because they have a lot more diversity in the sense of like CRP and they have, you know, the farming, you know, soil rental rates are obviously lower out there versus over here. And so that diversity there kind of helps facilitate, you know, higher pheasant abundances mm -hmm. um, versus more of a monocultural system. And when you don't have you know, cover there. And another thing we've been talking a lot about too is what role does cover crops, especially winter cover crops, play there um, in wildlife movements across the landscape? Because that could be a very, you know, successful, you know, venture if we have the right mixes of cover crops in a landscape that, that again, are not only beneficial for the wildlife, but also beneficial for that producer and their needs. Um, but again, when I kind of zoom all that out and kind of look at a regional scale, it's, 
the the monocultures that obviously does create some challenges from a wildlife movement standpoint when you have yeah. you know limited diversity but obviously that diversity and the way things are set up are obviously for a reason because the industry is just you know that's kind of a big part of the industry right now and the needs but i think moving forward from a sustainable ag practice there are obviously there are alternative options as well um, but that also creates the, the need for markets for things like that. And that's why there, I know there's been a lot of discussion to in carbon sequestration and other things along those lines yeah. is a whole other topic area because yeah. that's, you know, thinking about alternatives into the future. So, yeah, no, that's there. There's there's so much that goes into this from the cover for crops sure. and I'm sure even perennial crops. Is oh, something for sure. That you can start absolutely. Thinking about yeah. and y'all are probably starting to get excited <laughs> yeah. about it. Those markets start yeah, absolutely. Explode. Yeah. But. Um, I guess as we start to get towards the end of this interview, because uh, I mean, we may have to have you on again just to talk about more <laughs> of this stuff. But Glad to come back on. That'd be awesome. But um, getting to the end here, looking futuristically, if you were to, you know, kind of imagine some tools that would really help sure. with, with building out conservation, uh, precision conservation, whether that's database tools, mm -hmm. whether that's data acquisition tools, or whether that's literally a digital tool that kind of brings it all together, what would you like to see here? In the next few years for yeah. precision conservation yeah i think for me I, I would really like to see some tools where we can actually um using you know on the ground experiments at say our research mm. and extension centers to kind of feed in some data and in initially to these where basically we can look at um you know different scenarios kind of like scenario planning i mm -hmm. guess that's a better way to put it plan, yeah so mm -hmm. you're you're basically putting in you know if i if i did x then what is the likely response economically? Because bottom line, that's what it's going to come down to from a decision point. You know, is it affordable or not? You mm -hmm. know, and so yeah. that's where that's my vision is to be able to then get this input to the to the producers to say, okay, yeah, if I tried scenario one versus two versus three, what are the cost benefits for all those three options? And what makes the most sense on my ground? And that's where I think too is, you know, again, we can develop these tools, but the training the workshops engaging with our landowners to really kind of put them in the driver's seat in my mind to let them make those decisions for their properties so then it's it kind of lets them decide like what what works best you know what works best for the bottom line yeah. obviously i think in the near term you're still going to need to have a lot of it kind of advisement there i mean mm -hmm. maybe at some point you know down the road you know 10 years or so down the road we'll be able to have it where it's totally like you kind of do everything yourself right. um and i know there again there's there's an emphasis there's an interest in doing that so it's really kind of puts it on the producers to let them make their own decisions of what works best for their system. So that's really, I think for me, it's trying to, you know, having the data sets as data sources, I should say, are available that are already publicly available. And then letting the producer pull in things like yield monitor data, which is just a really great resource that they're mm -hmm. collecting a lot of times uh, on their combines. And they can pull that in themselves and then have a user-friendly option or user-friendly kind of like a GUI interface mm -hmm. where it's a point and click and then make you know those decisions on what scenario, financial scenario makes the most sense. For farmers, landowners, advisor, or whoever is listening to this podcast, and they are thinking about the, the few spots on their fields that's not yielding good or sure. something on these lines, how would you recommend that they get started assessing the, these options that we mentioned today? Yeah, so I would say the best option right now is to get in touch um, more most directly would be Nathan Fluger with Precision uh, Pheasant Forever with his, his Precision Ag role there because that's basically that that's his position to do that. Um, so as well as NRCS, other agencies that are in, uh, engaged in this realm, um, because I think you know a lot of these agencies realize that their organizations realize that's kind of a you know a great way to really optimize both. 
And, uh, and so that would be my recommendation is they would, you know, reach out to your local FSA office to see what options exist. One of the projects we're just getting started, I want to go ahead and note here, um, is with the Iowa State and their prairie strips program. And basically what they do is they take about 10% of a corn bean field and put that into uh, prairie strips. Mm. And, and basically that prairie strip is there to really kind of help from that sustainability from like the soil erosion, water loss, um, you know, benefits to wildlife, et cetera. Um, and really, so what we ended up, we partnered with them on is to, you know, basically bring that to Nebraska and basically kind of expand the footprint of prairie strips across Nebraska. And so uh, here in the near future, we have an extension driven project that we're going to be rolling that out, um, you know, basically hopefully with some landowners across the state, but also, you know, with our research and extension centers um, to actually demonstrate, you know, here's another option, mm -hmm. you know, that you could think about and is putting a prairie strip on your property. And that's actually in the conservation reserve program at CP 43. Mm -hmm. um, so producers actually can enroll in that right now. I've, I've heard of some producers in particular up in the Northeast part of the state that are enrolling in that right now. And so they want it. And their end goal was, um, one of the producers I've, I've uh, talked with some of the biologists about is, Hey, I, I really want to create uh, options for my kids to be able to grandkids to come in here and pheasant hunt. Yeah. And I, and I don't have that right now. And so this seems like a viable option. And these are some marginal acres that I'm not really making much on, or maybe they're on terraces or whatever, right. that, you know, maybe my equipment can't get around anymore. And so that's an alternative option that then that the producer is able to get some, you know, economic returns from that, from the program, but then also have that, you know, benefit for their kids, grandkids, et cetera. Yeah. And Andrew, uh, do you have a last piece of advice to offer our listeners when it comes to land management and wildlife conservation efforts? Yeah, I'd say, you know, I think from my perspective um, is to kind of think through like what what options, you know, you know, could you look at on your property for the sustainability in the future? And I, I'd say one story that I, I think really kind of hit me from a producer up in the northeast part of the state um, that really kind of emphasized the importance of, you know, precision conservation efforts is uh, the producer, I listened to uh, my presentation in a meeting a while back and came up afterwards and said he owned quite a few acres in the northeast part of the state and, and basically just said that, um, you know, from my perspective, um, I'm looking at future generations, uh, you know, my kids, grandkids, et cetera, that are going to own this farm. And I'm, I've lost soil, obviously, on my fields. And I'm, so I'm thinking about, like, you know, the Prairie Strip Program is an option you know, to help reduce that into the future and that sustainability. And so it was really, to me, it kind of hit me as a, a really exciting moment because it basically said, well, you know, the, the producer was kind of thinking through this kind of the mm -hmm. long term, because a lot of we live really, as I always kind of tell people, we live in kind of the you know microwave generation, you know, <laughs> conservation really ends up being a long term investment. Um, it's not like, you know, getting on our phone and pulling something up on Google, we can have it instantaneous, you know, it takes time. And so, you know, kind of thinking about that long-term effect, you know, of conservation and landscape, why should we do it? Um, and again, from that producer's perspective, it just really kind of really hit me as like, that's, you know, that's great to hear because at, at the end of the day, you know, that's somebody who's really investing into the future, um, you know, long before, you know, after, after I should say, um, they're gone. And, uh, you know, thinking about that, you know, future farm, essentially. So, yeah, yeah I'd say that's a really the, you know, think about the longevity of, of the resources out there you have and, I'm excited to see, you know, people starting to adopt these techniques and approaches and as we move into the future. Thank you very much to Dr. Little for taking the time to join us for this episode of the Farm Beats podcast. It's really exciting to see how technology is improving precision conservation. And one of my favorite parts of this episode was how people are adopting new practice towards the precision conservation 
and how this practice can impact our future generations in different ways. Yeah, it was really interesting, you know, kind of hearing some of the stories about farmers in Northeast Nebraska and how they're already thinking about those next generations and how to sustain their farms for the future. One of the things I thought was really interesting discussing was all the different stakeholder groups that are involved within precision conservation between landowners, farmers, you know, NRCS, um, and, and all the different psychological elements that kind of go into making these adoption decisions. So, and, and kind of how they're thinking about integrating these into digital tools. I think that's a really, really interesting aspect of what uh, Dr. Little's lab is doing across the board. Um, so yeah, I thought it was a great episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. You tuned in to listen, uh, and we look forward to you joining us again next week as we bring another story about digital agriculture to you. Thanks. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the Farm Beats podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about the latest content each week. We welcome your feedback. So if you have comments or questions for us, please reach out to us over email, on Twitter, or in the review section of your favorite podcast platform. Our contact information can be found in the show notes. We would like to thank Nebraska Extension for their support of this podcast and their commitment to providing high-quality informational material to members of the agricultural community in Nebraska and beyond. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the views of Nebraska Extension or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Farm Beats.